Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for Welcome some awesome. show, friends. Today we've got a good one for you. You need to get your thinking hats on for this one. And if you don't know how to get your thinking hat on, let me tell you about this month's sponsor. Because they're going to tell you all about how to get your thinking hat on. And this month's sponsor, let me tell you who it is. Actually, you know what? We're going to have my special assistant, my three-year-old daughter, Adeline, tell you who it is. Who's our sponsor, Adeline? Graduate. Graduate School of Theology. Good job, Alan. Yes, this month's sponsor is ACU's Graduate School of Theology. Now, students of ACU's Graduate School of Theology have hearts set on bringing life and redemption to a hurting world. Now, ACU Graduate School of Theology's mission is to equip these men and women for effective missional leadership in all its forms and to provide strong academic foundations for theological inquiry. Now, the Graduate School of Theology is not just a school. It's a community. We are a community of learners and disciples curious about our faith and history, committed to becoming the hands and feet of Christ in our world. Now, if you're interested in getting an MDiv, an MA in Christian ministry or global service, an MA in theology, Old Testament, New Testament, ancient Oriental Christianity, modern and American Christianity, there are MAs for all those subjects and a doctorate of ministry. And don't forget, there's online programs that you can do as well for MDivs. You can do, well, I don't know about MDivs, but there's online stuff you can do as well. You can check more of that out. Uh, there's a link on our website. There's also a link over on our Facebook page where Newsworthy Northworthy on Facebook. You can go like us, and there's a link to uh, them over there. So check that out. Uh, if you haven't also, by the way, speaking of things you should check out, if you haven't gone to iTunes, subscribed, left a rating and review, you should do that. It helps out the show in a small way. So go ahead and check that out on iTunes as well. And let me tell you what you're going to hear today. This is a fun conversation with Chris Green, Pete Enns, two biblical scholars talking about how you read the Bible. It is going to be very enlightening, and you do need to have your thinking hats on for this one because we get... They, they get they get pretty smart on you. My boys are wicked smart, and you're going to really enjoy this. And uh, I apologize that uh, Pete Enns doesn't actually have an internet connection. He's clearly just borrowing off his neighbor. And so it's a little foggy on his end, but it was well worth listening. So, without further ado, here it is. Uh, it's Friday. Hey, we're recording. All right, welcome back to the show, friends. Today we're doing something a little bit different, but it's it's v- really the same. I mean, you're used to me being in a conversation with someone who's always smart. You're used to me being the second smartest person in the conversation, and today is no different. I'm the second smartest person in the conversation, <laughs> but we've got three people in the conversation today, so... You know, that's a little different. All right, so returning to the show, we have the world's smartest Pentecostal, Dr. Chris Green, and our friend, a return to the show for like the millionth time, Dr. Pete Enns. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks, man. Good to see you. Now, what we're doing today is a Hunger Games-style showdown <laughs> between the godless Ivy League grad, Dr. Pete. Speaking of that, by the way, I've always wondered, like when you go to the Ivy League like you did, Pete, do they yeah. give you a tutorial on how to destroy students' faith when they get to college, or is that something you guys just learn on your own? You just sort of pick that up. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Because I see that in every Christian movie. It seems like every yeah. Ivy League person is trying to do that. Do you... Yeah, because they're all the same. Yeah. It's like albinos and Ivy League grads are always demonized in movies. Right. That's true, though. That's true. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then on the other side... We have the world's smartest Pentecostal, Dr. Chris Green, who has actually used that now as the nameplate on his office door, from what I hear. And so we're ex- so yeah. excited to have you back. <laughs> yeah, that's a no. You cause me endless grief with that. I don't what? know if you realize that or not. How yes, about, I've been, I've been, I've suffered greatly for that. That's a, it's a nice thing to say. But people who How know me, two or three. Go ahead, Peter, How many Pentecostals do you know, Luke? <laughs> Seriously, you know. When this podcast is aired, I will have just talked to Jonathan Martin. So that's at least two. Does Brian Zahn count as a Pentecostal? Yeah, I guess. He's charismatic, yeah. That's yeah. three. And then I've got one of Chris's students who's, uh, who we do church together. So that's four. Okay. So a couple things here. One is, as I've told you before, to, to riff on Harawas, smartest is not a theological <laughs> category. And secondly, if you knew more than one Pentecostal, <laughs> you'd know that I'm, I, I wouldn't rank, even if that were a category. 
And if you've talked to Jonathan and Brian, then, you know, I'm well, upset about that. You haven't heard the interaction with Jonathan. You're clearly... St- <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Oh, nice. I'm kidding. Yeah, okay. we, should let this, we should let this die. <laughs> That's all we have time for today, folks. <laughs> well, thanks well, uh... for tuning back in. Okay, so uh, Chris Green, when you were on the show last, I actually had some positive interaction about you. I had one guy send me an email, and I think I forwarded this to you. Uh, a Catholic friend of mine from the Midwest said... You know, when I heard he was connected to Oral Roberts, I was about to tune him out. But then I listened, and I was like, I really liked Chris Green. So people do like the, the Pentecostals. And Pete, I checked on the iTunes um, ratings, and there was a review recently. Oh, really? Of yeah, what? Of the, pod- of the podcast. Some people oh, support which... the show by leaving ratings, and it really helps us out. And there's okay. a gentleman named Sage who gave some very sage advice. And he said that he's purchased multiple books from... Pete ends and Pete Rollins, two Pete's in one pod, because oh. he uh, he heard you guys on the podcast. So, oh, cool. nice. you owe me a cut of the massive do, man. royalties you get from Harper <laughs> One. I'll get back to you on that. That's a great idea, Luke. I'll Done. get back. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll send an email to Harper One and say that you want that just kind of worked into the next book deal. Just ten okay. percent, right to me. Okay, so what we're doing here is we had uh, Chris Green on. wasn't too long ago, maybe two months ago. And we were going to talk about prayer because I was going to let you write a sermon for me because I was preaching on prayer, and you did. So thank you for that. But we got on a rant about interpretation because you've written uh, a book entitled uh, Sanctifying Interpretation. And so yeah. that's a, a, a pet project, a, an interest of yours. And you said something that I didn't know how to process. And so I thought if I could get my man Pete Enns on here, we could process this together because he's also got a book, multiple books about how you read the Bible. Right. Including right. the most recent one, The Bible Tells Me So, published by Harper One. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wanted to kind of interact over some of the comments that you made. And you said something that, about not wanting to privilege the Gospels over the, new t- the rest of the New Testament and even the New Testament over the Old Testament, which right. was, it was different from <clears throat> anything I've heard. And so I kind of want to maybe you can rephrase and uh, restate kind of what you were uh, trying to communicate there. And uh, we'll just start with that. Sure. So part of what I w- would do here is maybe distinguish my project or what I'm up to trying to do or try, at least trying to suggest as a possibility over against the alternative that I think Brian Zahn often uses, not Brian alone by any means. Um, and that is the idea that the Gospels, so to speak, trump everything else. Mm-hmm. So if you find dissonance in, in the text of Scripture between the Gospels and particular Old Testament text, but not that alone, just any dissonance at all, that the gospel kind of wins out over that in some kind of competitive way. And if, if I were to accept all of the framework there, that's where I would end up too, I mean, because I share those same basic sensibilities. But I think what I would, at least what I'm trying out, is the possibility of, of arguing that all of Scripture is the word of the Jesus who's revealed in the Gospels. And the key is to read all of Scripture so that it harmonizes with the Gospels, rather than letting the Gospels trump it. Mm-hmm. Okay, you said, or, or end it in some way. You said if I had that same framework, you would end up there. Is that the framework you're talking about? No, no, no. The framework, I think, that... Like, so here's the thing. I think part of the issue is, if you use a strictly grammatical, historical approach to the text, or historical, critical approach to the text, and you're concerned primarily with what the authors meant, or editors or redactors, however you're going to frame that issue, right? What, the, what it meant at one time in its original setting versus what it means now, right? If you use that kind of approach, a, a standard evangelical approach of the last hundred years or whatever, I think you do end up with some, some difficulties that you then have to make some hard choices about which texts are you going to let win out over others. Mm-hmm. And what I'm and again, this is, for me, exploratory it's, and experimental. It's not, I don't feel as if I've somehow hit on the, the key that's going to unlock every door or anything like that. It's just I'm uncomfortable with that entire approach. So what I'm, what I'm experimenting with in conversation with lots of different people is the possibility of thinking about the whole project of reading Scripture differently. Hmm. And one of the advantages, I think, of reimagining the project of why we read Scripture and how to read it and so on is that all texts of Scripture can speak as the Word of Christ. They can be gospel if we know how to read them. 
The, the, so it becomes about how we read those mm-hmm. texts. And so, but I think you kind of have to change the, the evangelical framework in order to be able to talk like that yeah. sensibly, right? Yeah. So if, but if I were to accept a basic evangelical framework, I think I would end up in that same place of the Gospels trumping other texts. So it's really, you know, I don't know that I'm articulating that well, but that, that's the difference for me. Gotcha. Now, my background would have me wanting to go with that grammatical historical reading. Pete, would it be fair to say that's where you come from, too? Um, well, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to try to be, you know, nice just because you're paying me to be on your loop, right? <laughs> you are paying me, right? No. Yes, um, and hugs and friendship. Yeah. But I think, you know, I mean, if, if I'm understanding you correctly, um, Chris, I think that there's something about a grammatical historical reading of at least the New Testament that might lead us somewhat in your direction because of how determined the New Testament writers are to have all of Scripture be gospel, so to speak. Yeah, right, 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 right. Other quotations. So I think, I think there's a lot there to be said for... Um, you know, articulated the way you are, which is, you know, it's a work in progress, as mine is, too. You know, we're trying to put the pieces of the Bible together, right? And that's yeah. not an easy thing to do. And yeah. and there are always going to be sort of theories, so to speak, that, that you know, account for things better than other things. So, yeah, um, yeah. so I, you know, I, I look at it from, you know, point of view of biblical scholarship, and I see the hermeneutical adventure that the Bible puts us on, which is not a grammatical historical adventure. Right. It's something deeper than that, but mm-hmm. it's a grammatical historical reading of the text that shows me that they're not being grammatical historical; that they're doing something <laughs> different. Yeah. And I yeah. think you know, to, for for the church to sort of move into that bigger, um, more for people more frightening because you don't have the anchors, you don't have the. How can you be sure? Well, you can't. Yeah, how, how can I right. know? This is the way to read the text. You can't know. Mm-hmm. Welcome, <laughs> welcome <laughs> right, to right, Bible right, right. reading. You don't have that. You don't. You don't have the 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 you know the bumpers and the bowling alley to sort of keep you in line to make sure you do it right. Um, because it sounds very Jewish too. I mean, I sort of harp on this now and then, but but in, in a good sense of the word that, um, uh, you know, exploring scripture is, I think, what we're supposed to be doing. It's, yeah, it's, I love that. Yeah the final answers, and, and, and so I resonate, you know, with, with what you're saying. Um, I think, you know, in terms of the Gospels trumping things, I, I mean, I get that, and, and I've, I'm sometimes, I, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that, but that's rather complicated, too. That puts you on another kind of adventure, and that raises different kinds of questions and sure. parts. You know, the Gospels are very much conditioned by communities living a generation or two after Jesus and, and Paul's earlier. You know, and there are old things in Paul that the Gospels don't have, and there are, um, you, you don't have the pure words of Jesus in the Gospels, you have interpretation. So yeah, right, absolutely. It, it, gets, it gets a little bit complicated, I think. Definitely, completely agree. Okay, so if we're trying <clears throat> at home to figure this out, the grammatical historical approach, which is, okay, we're going to try to figure out what they were saying in the first century, and this is what was really going on, and this is the context, and we're going to piece that together, and it's going to help us to really understand uh, what's really trying to be said. And that's the interpretive tool that you know, many of us come with. That's what I, I feel like that's what I was trained to do. Like That's what I was right. taught. This is what you're supposed to do. So, Pete, you say that even the New Testament doesn't try to read it that way. Can you explain what you, or the, the gospel writers, what did you mean by that? Well, I mean, the New, the New Testament writers are, you know, forever engaging their scripture, mm-hmm. the Old Testament, but they're not doing it in what evangelicals call a grammatical, historical, you know, let's reproduce the meaning of the original utterance, so to speak. The, 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 the words are being transposed because gospel... But lowercase g, not the Gospels, but Gospel is central to what their point is for what they want to talk about. So they they, they draw these connections into into the, the the story of Jesus in their community and, and for the sake of their communities, and and they do it in a very creative way. You know, I mean, it, it's it's um to me it's just a red siren screaming at us every time we read the Bible, and you 
you see how they use scripture, there's clearly something going on there that's not what we would call grammatical historical. But again, the irony is that it's grammatical historical interpretation that sort of alerts us to that. We can watch what they're doing, and you say, well, they're not doing what I do, and I found that out because I'm looking at it in sort of this modern Western kind of way. If I could jump in really quickly, one of the things I would say is I, I, I definitely don't think we want to throw away historical critical broadly or even more narrowly that grammatical historical way of reading the text. Mm-hmm. I just don't want it to have hegemony. You know, I don't want it to have the final word about the way to get at. Hold on, what did you just say? He- he- <laughs> hege- I'm the only one here without a doctorate, so excuse me, I don't use the word hegemony. <laughs> Sorry about Look, that. I told you last time, keep a dictionary nearby when you do these. <laughs> well, Pete, you just make up words. Chris, I'm, I'm getting... I'm 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 giddy to talk with Pete about this, so forgive me. I, I will I'll try to monitor myself a little more closely. No, I, I mean I, I definitely I'm very much like Robert Jensen on this point, right? So he did this piece on identity and Jesus in this collected essay. Hold on, why were you just giddy to talk to him, not me? About the two of the two of you, <laughs> okay. you moderating that conversation. <laughs> this is the disadvantage of being the third smartest person in a conversation, right? I, I continually said, trip over myself. I never said who the third one was. <laughs> Everyone knows, right? He didn't. He didn't. Okay, so what is expect. Robert Jensen? What did he have to so say? So Jensen's Jensen's point about historical historical Jesus stuff, which I came at this through conversation with N.T. Wright. I mentioned this the last time we were talking. That's a good and part answer. of my part of my problem with. With Wright's project, I was asked to write a chapter in this book, Pentecostals Responding to N.T. Wright, and I started out writing as a kind of fanboy, and then, like halfway through the process, realized that I, I really had trouble with some of what Wright was claiming about his hermeneutic, mm-hmm. and I didn't know what to do with that. And so, a large part of the conversation we're having right now is the spillover from that for me. Okay, was was realizing that. I think he privileges his historical way of engaging the text in a way that essentially brackets out people who don't have his knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one, that's, I mean, this is a, a tapestry, right? But that's one thread for me mm-hmm. was th- this issue of, I think Christian, Christian readings of scripture should be scholarly, but I don't think one form of scholarship should win out over others. Right? So when I read mm-hmm. the medieval ways of reading scripture, I think there's a wisdom there that we've lost that we shouldn't lose. It's not the only way to read scripture, but it is a way that right. that should be honored. I feel much the same way about Wright's project or anyone who's reading those texts that way. I don't want to do away with it. I just don't want it to have the final word and, and come to control everything we do with the text. And part of the thing for me is I think the primary purpose of scripture is not to gain knowledge, but to become certain kinds of people. It's mm-hmm. supposed to affect our imagination, our affections, our character, primarily. Mm-hmm. And if we read the way Wright reads, I think you get something else. Like, if you just follow his hermeneutic strictly. Now, I actually think he's doing more than his own hermeneutic allows. Mm-hmm. But if you just follow it tightly, I think it, it produces a kind of knowledge, but it keeps us at a distance from the text, the distance of expertise as you said, if you read these texts grammatically, historically, you get perspective, but I don't know what that does to our character. I think there's a way of reading Scripture that that shapes us. And the last thing I'll say about that is I actually think when you read the text closely, you see that it wants that. And so one of the things that happened to me is reading the Old Testament and realizing that it wants to speak gospel, and we don't have to force it to. It does it in, I think, surprising ways and sometimes troubling ways, mm-hmm. but it... It's wiser than we've given it credit. Okay. For me. Okay, Pete, before I let you respond to that, if someone's listening at home and they hear you criticize an NT right and they didn't throw their phone on the ground and break it, which <laughs> I think is a legitimate response. I think that's fair. If if someone says that about Brother Tom, you, you can do that. But if they're hearing you talk about his, his way of reading scripture and they don't know exactly what you mean by that, what, what's like the, the 22nd, this is you know Dr. Wright's interpretive tool for reading scripture? In yeah, your opinion. So I, yeah. Well, I mean, he talks about this at length in Jesus and the Victory of God and other places. But I mean, he essentially spells out that if you do enough historical study about the Second Temple Judaism mm-hmm. and you know enough about how texts work, you can essentially triangulate all of that, read the text of the Gospels and get back to what Jesus must have thought about himself and his project. 
So all of this for him, and those, those first couple of books, are about discerning Jesus' self-understanding mm-hmm. and his aims, right? messianic aims. And so he essentially applies this hermeneutic and, and argues that over against a lot of quote-unquote postmodern readings, there's still a lot to be said for the historical project of modernity, and he doesn't want to do away with that. He has that image in the opening part of Jesus and the Victory of God, where he talks about the difference between icons and images, mm-hmm. or pictures. And he says, you know, the church wants to give us icons of Jesus, but we can have more than that. And it was reading that section that really started to disrupt me. You know, mm-hmm. and, and everything I'm saying here doesn't come out of that. That's just one aspect of yeah. the conversation for me. But that is part of my troubledness. Yeah. yeah. Well, Pete, I know as a fellow Harper One author, uh, you actually have a contractual obligation to stick up for Dr. Wright. <laughs> so I'll let you... <laughs> Go ahead and do that before. Yeah, he writes for a lot of people. He writes for a lot of people, you know. Sure he does. Well, yeah, I think, um, you know, one thing I'd say is that it's not that, you know, it's not like Tom's without his own critics, you know, within that same world, because, you know, triangulating Second Temple Judaism and Gospels and whatever, um, I mean, there, there, I mean, I, I love Tom. There are many people who disagree with him, who think he overstates evidence. I mean, the, the reviews I've read, you know, just of the recent Paul book, I haven't read it because it would take me, you know, more time than I have right now to, to do that. But, um, you know, so so the, the thing is, you know, there is no, it's, it's just a reminder that there's no, um, there's no way of achieving certain knowledge through expertise of antiquity. Because we're we're um, you know we're working with no data, which is mm-hmm. the favorite title of my uh, of, of, of books from the Old Testament. You know, that working with no data because that's sort of what we're doing a lot of times. We just we don't know, and we have hypotheses, and we kick them around, and they're always works in progress, and there is always room for criticism. So, um, I think though what what you know, I mean, on the more positive side, Tom has really upset conservative people. <laughs> and and there's something to be said for that. Um, not that that's his aim or anything, but um, yeah. there there's, see, there's something about the value of looking at things in a historically oriented kind of way that can actually challenge deeply embedded theological categories, right? Not right. that's the end of the story then, but it has, there's a value to it as well. I mean, Walter Wink calls it the acid bath of criticism, which sort of, just, you know, washes away some of the nonsense we make up about stuff. Yes. Um, but, you know, um, but that's, I don't see you as doing that, Chris. You're not making stuff up. It says you are access, you're, you're in conversation with broader currents of scholarship than modern Western scholarship. You know, medieval thinking, which is scholarship too, not in a modern Western sense, but it's very much scholarship. Mm-hmm. And the early church and, and people have accessed scripture in very different ways. And, and in a way, it's all good, <laughs> but no one way is prior, right? So, right, how to right. sort of mix those things together and sort of like try to do the best we can in the moment that we're living in. But we all get come at things from a perspective what can we add to the conversation from our perspective? That's why I like yeah, and I mean, I certainly don't want this to turn into a, you know, some kind of referendum on my agreement or disagreement with Wright. I mean, I've gained hugely from him, but that's just one way of kind of showing up how my discomfort with that project started. You know, mm-hmm. I, and I will say, for me, it's it's really about what do we think reading scripture is for? Like, what's the project? And so, in the in the book, what I'm arguing, what I start with is a kind of a, a theology of vocation. Who are we called to be? What are we called to be as human beings? And how does Scripture fit into that? Mm-hmm. Reading Scripture fit into that. So that, that's really where my concern lies. And I actually do think grammatical, historical, and, and even very critical work from a historical perspective can have enormous effect. I mean, I love that image of the acid bath because I think that's right. I think a lot of your own work, Pete, has been like that. Especially, you know, I'm thinking of the first piece that I'd read by you on the incarnation analogy, mm-hmm. incarnation inspiration and the way you handled the Old Testament there, I could see the ways in which you were using historical readings pushing back on assumptions mm-hmm. people had, right? And I, and I love that. And I, and I do yes. the same kind of work, and I think that's good, important work. I just yeah. The only thing I want to add to that conversation is that's not the only way to get at 
right. the, the transformative reading, which I know you agree with. But yeah, I, I definitely agree with it. I think you know if you know every every school needs one of me. You know, not not fifty. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it, for every church, it's, it's like not everyone does what I do, and and that's fine. But um, you know, and I and and there are different perspectives, different points of view. I think this is how to read scripture. I think is a multidisciplinary task. Mm. It's not. It's not from any one particular discipline, and I even could say outside of classical, theological, philosophical, biblicistic categories. I mean, you could talk to psychologists and anthropologists about what does it mean to be a community. You know, I mean, those, there's a lot of um, there are a lot of different areas to be tapped. I think for us to be thinking creatively about that, and not everybody has to be interested in those conversations either to get a lot out of the Bible. I hope not, right? So, right. But that's what we do. We 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 bore people. That's what we do. We we, we do this stuff. We write books. Forty people read them. Hopefully, another forty buy it. And um, you know, that's what it is. Yeah. Okay. So, Chris has this <laughs> this, uh, and, and I've heard Chris preach multiple times, Pete, and. Uh, I, I hope he doesn't hear me say this. Maybe just like close your ears, but like he's a really good preacher, which is really uh-huh. like it's really scary. Like if I'm saying nice thing, that many nice things about Pentecostals, I don't I don't know what's going to happen <laughs> next. I'm going to have to get an aquarium and fill it up. You with might start raising the dead or something. Like yeah, that. I know. I don't I don't want to <laughs> do that. But um, so, but he's got this thing where it, he's asking the question: I'm, What has the church throughout the years said about this text? And so one of his interpretive tools is is going through and seeing the history of the church, how they've interacted with this text. And that is a tool that I don't think I've used a whole lot. It seems like the tool that I go to is, you know, the historical grammar, grammatical stuff of, okay, what is, right, you know, right. what does the language point to? And do you see that as being an, like one of the important pieces that we need to incorporate, one of the important tools that we need to have as we're working with text? Um. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I teach, uh, uh, one of the undergraduate courses that I teach um, at Eastern is called Biblical Hermeneutics, and basically it's a history of interpretation of Christianity to sort of get students used to the fact that a lot of smart, godly people have been reading this text with assumptions that you don't hold, and that's okay. And you can learn from that, and you can become more self-aware of your own approach to how you read the Bible by watching other people do it. Um, I mean, the history of, as you know, Chris knows, I'm sure better than I do, the, how diverse the history of Christian interpretation. And we lost Pete. <laughs> All right, hold on one second. The, God, the historical grammatical gods are out to end this conversation. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'm going to cut this. We'll get him right back on, and I'll start that question over again. Okay. Uh, this is how... Pete, I told you his terrible... Uh, Terrible phone. Bandwidth stuff, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what, it, or uh, Skype, yeah. Let's add, uh, let's add him back in here. Pete, come on, Pete. I'm here. Can you hear me? You're back? Okay. Yeah. So uh, pick up with. Uh, y- At what point in my brilliant monologue was, were we <laughs> dropped? I think when you stopped talking about the Yankees. That's when. <laughs> it, uh... Oh, way back there, huh? <laughs> yeah. Okay, you teach, uh, what do you teach at Eastern? Pick up with that. Oh, yeah, I, I teach um, um, a course, Biblical Hermeneutics at Eastern. Um, and it's basically, it's a history of interpretation course. We begin with, you know, with inner biblical interpretation itself within the Old Testament, but we move to New Testament's use of the old, you know, the early church, medieval period, Reformation period, and um, we don't judge them one way or the other, but we expose the kids to how the church has handled Scripture differently, and it's all good. It's okay. It's it's actually valuable, and 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 the diversity of interpretation is you know the the diachronic and synchronic diversity of interpretation of the church throughout history and even today at this very moment that tells you something about how the Bible actually functions in the life of the church, yeah. and it's not get the one meaning, which is the goal of grammatical historical interpretation. Yeah, right. Yeah. So. You know, I, and that's why I think you know, I, I, you know, what Chris does in his preaching, I think, is great. I think it's it's hard to do everything in a teaching ministry in the church. And I don't know how long you preach for, Chris, but it's a long time. We have pissed the aliens to about twelve minutes. It's too long. That's, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, but uh, you know, it, it's hard. 
do everything, and, and I think how you preach and, and may have much more to do with the people sitting out there and what you know about them and where they are collectively as a group than anything else, than a method you learn in seminary and then you go apply it. To yeah. me, that seems rather stubborn. I, w- I think I'll, I'll throw this out for both of you to respond to. Since I value both of you equally in this conversation, <laughs> Luke, you have any anxiety about that? But it seems to me that any method, you know, there's that image Augustine has, I think it's on, in his book on Christian doctrine, where he says, you know, there's reading scripture the right way is like taking the path that's been made for you, and reading scripture the wrong way is going off the path. But sometimes you can get off the path and still end up in the right place. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I'll, I'll playing off that image, what, I guess what I would want to say is the right place to end up is where we have communities of people who are shaped in the image of Christ. Okay. And any methodology that serves that can't be all that bad. And, and, and over yeah. a generation, and maybe what we need to attend to is, a, is what's happening to the people who are reading the, the text the way we are, rather right. than thinking about it in terms of, What's the one right way, or what are the two right ways of reading scripture? So respond to that if you will. That's kind of that's where my you know that's where I want to put my feet down. At least, I think in this you know in this conversation. Yeah, I'll let Pete well, speak for both of us. Okay. <laughs> um, I first heard in seminary the the, the phrase um, "goal determines method," um, and, and you get that from the New Testament writers that the, you know the the goal is Jesus. Yeah. And that determines the method. It's not the method that brings you to this goal magically. It's the, it's the goal that actually affects how you read and why you read. Um, and I, you know, I've used this term, you know, Christotelic reading yeah, right. of, of the Bible, but that is really riffing off of Richard Hayes' idea of ecclesiotelic, which is the point of the Bible is to form a new community, not not just... Um, yes, having right. knowledge, I guess, like you said. So there's a yeah. wisdom dimension to to uh, reading the Bible and its purpose. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think I want to be careful here not to sound like I'm taking cheap shots, but there are a lot of angry pastors, angry theologians, angry Christians, and I ask myself, that's not very attractive. Why would I want to be a part of that? And I don't care how right you think you are. Yeah, it means nothing to me. It's it's. I mean, there's a reason. I mean, um, for people who are not are not invested in the life of the church, they see something like that from the outside, and what you've become is not something that I want to spend a lot yeah. of time. With, so right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I brought this up actually in a course I teach on creation about one of the questions that rarely gets asked is what kind of people does the literal creationist reading of Genesis 1 and 2 produce? Mm-hmm. And I, I think these are questions that, have, that belong in, a Christian, in Christian reflection on hermeneutics. Like what mm-hmm. happens to our character, to our imaginations, to our affections mm-hmm. when, we, when we read in these ways. So you know, I, I think Christotelic, I mean, I, I, I know you use that at least in that Ecclesiastes commentary that you did. Which is where I came up on it. I mean, I, I think that's that's really close to what I'm pushing for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as the only one in the conversation who hasn't used a made up word yet, um, <laughs> I'm going to move forward and ask the question of like, how do you use that as a filter of like, what kind of person am I becoming? It seems like it would be. It, it's a different type of question. It's a question you probably want to be asking with your spiritual director or your counselor, not mm. with your the the guy who wrote the Exodus commentary that you're reading. No offense, Pete. Yeah, no, none taken. None taken, as always. Um, yeah. So what do you think, Chris? <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I think that's part of the problem we have right now, right? In that ways of reading Scripture, I'll just speak from my own tradition, which I, I suspect is true for most Protestants, but just for the sake of not sounding like an idiot in case I'm wrong. I mean, in my own tradition, I think... You have scholarly ways of reading Scripture, and then you have popular ways, the ways most people in our churches and the pews read. And one of the unintended consequences of the Reformation and the, the rise of the modern world has been that those ways of reading hardly touch each other anymore. Mm-hmm. And, right. you know, David Ford has 
talked a lot about way, reading Scripture for wisdom. And I feel like that's what we're missing. In my experience, both in the Pentecostal Academy and in the Pentecostal Church, often ways of reading for wisdom are missing. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, if, if I have kind of a, something that's pulling me along, that's what it is. Like, how do we recover ways of reading? So even the way you frame that question, like, you know, that you have the scholar who works on the commentary, mm-hmm. right? And then you've got the spiritual director who's concerned about the state of your soul. I mean, that's a, that's a, to me, that's a commentary on just how broken our way of engaging the work of God is, and you too. Yes, well, and you too. I'm friends with Richard Rohr, so I don't have this binary oh, worldview. I, I live this non-dualism. <laughs> but I was just trying to pretend to be something so I could relate with you too. Nice. Well done. Well done. But no, it is difficult if, okay, if you go to the text and your question is uh, historical, critical kind of questions, or you ask what is the, uh, the way the church has read this, those are still different questions than how is this making me more like Jesus when I'm reading, if you want to go with the creation story, like the first creation story. Say you read Genesis 1 and you go, how does this make me more like Jesus? W- what am I doing here? Am I saying, okay, the, we're going to read Genesis 1 from a historical context, and you're going to read Pete Enns, and he's going to tell you it's, uh, you know, it's influenced by Tiamat Marduk and the Babylonian creation myths. And, <laughs> and, and we're trying to say, I don't know what Pete was going to say, but I'm pretending like I'm Pete here. And I'm going to say that the point of that is to say that, you know, God is the one God who speaks and the world is created, you know, whatever way it happens. But how does that, like that nugget get me to Christ's likeness? Does it make sense? Yeah, well, there's not, there's, there's rarely, and I'll let Pete speak to this too, but I mean, I don't think there's a, there's, Ever, and if ever, there is only rarely a direct line between reading a text and being made like Jesus. I mean, we're talking about being shaped into Christ's character is something that happens over a lifetime in community in countless ways. One of those ways, I would argue, is reading Scripture. But it's never, or at least only rarely, a case in which there's some kind of direct, obvious link between reading a text and something happening to you. I think it's much more subtle, dynamic, and multifaceted than that. Yeah, I would say narratival. It's not just taking propositions, but you know, or, or a yeah, story. Right. But it's it's putting the pieces together, which takes time. You know, um, you know, something. I remember, um, you know, James Google, who was my doctoral advisor um, at Harvard. I'll mention Harvard again because Luke likes it so much when I talk about <laughs> Harvard. It really classes makes, up this whole podcast. Okay. True story. I did a wedding for a buddy of mine who's the chief resident through the orthopedic surgery of Harvard, and I just wanted a T-shirt saying Harvard Medicine on it so I could look pompous, and I never even got that from him. So thanks a lot, Harvard. Yeah. Luke, you just interrupted me, though, by the way. I was about to say something. Well, you're going to make up another word. Narratively was the last one you made up. No, so that's a good word. That's, that's a good... not a word. Okay, so no, what do they uh, teach you at what, Harvard? What James Kugel said was we were talking about Song of Songs. And he said something that it struck me. It was, a, it was an offhand comment that I've, I've been processing, you know, on one level ever since. He says, what makes the Bible the Word of God isn't the words on the page. It's the interpretation given to the words. So I, I look at yes, things yes. like, you know, to take the Genesis 1 example, um, there's a back and forth. It's, it's what we bring into that expectation of reading the text which is, let's call it a Christ-centered expectation or a Christian community expectation or something, that actually affects how we read it, right? And I, and I think of medieval interpretation or some of the early church interpreters doing that very same thing because you expect certain things from Scripture, so you either allegorize or you moralize or you do something. Um, so it... And, and and that gets me back to something you said before, Chris, about how the Old Testament sort of, it wants to be gospel, which I get what you're saying. I don't have a problem with that. But I, there's another, there, the other side to that is claiming this, this ancient narrative and transforming it in light of something else. So, mm-hmm. you know, another way of putting it, I think we're, we're in the age-old conundrum of continuity and discontinuity between yeah, yeah, right. Old and New Testament. And that's an inescapable issue that I have no interest in solving, because you can't. Right. No, <laughs> yeah. I'm with you on that. Yeah. So, I, I think the, the things that I'm wanting to hold up are, well, I mean, I, I think I said this, Luke, last time I was talking with you, but for me, theologically, one of the things we see with Jesus, and part of the, what I would want to argue 
is that if Jesus, what we see in the Gospels, right, is a witness, first of all, it's mediated witness, as Pete has already said. I mean, it's not Jesus' own words, quote-unquote. It's the words of Jesus as given to us by his people. And, but what we see is a Jesus who tells stories, right, and who gives directions and acts in certain ways that themselves require interpretation. I mean, I, I tell my students all the time, the greatest lie that's ever been, that's ever been put out there by anyone is that Jesus was a simple teacher. There's nothing simple about yeah, Jesus' teaching. Yeah. Nobody ever understood anything he was saying. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, whatever the exact opposite of a simple teacher is, that's what Jesus is. Yeah. And if Jesus is the Word of God, then that means all of Scripture works like that mm-hmm. at some level, right? That right. there is no, quote-unquote, simple teaching in Scripture when we hear it as Jesus' Word, because he's teaching us in some way, right? Uh-huh. And I think that that usually works indirectly. So I, one of the examples that I go to over and over again is the story of, the, the widow who won't give up, right? She's been wrong. She keeps going to this unjust judge and insisting, mm-hmm. do right by me, do right by me. And finally he caves and does right by her. And then Jesus draws from that this moral of you ought always to pray and never mm-hmm. faint. And, and if the way we've been taught to read that would seem, well, Jesus must think that God is reluctant to answer our prayers. Right? Yeah, right, right. Which is clearly not the way we want to read but that's still, I think, the way a lot of us have been taught to read other right. texts. And so what, what, what I would want to do is say, what if all of the stories, or not all of them, but many of the stories that trouble us so much, Jesus takes those stories up and tells them. But when he tells them, he's up to something else. So I, I, this is, for me, right. like the texts of, well, well, the genocide texts in the Old Testament. Right. I think part of our trouble is we end up, jumping behind those stories to the historical record and then argue about whether or not it did or didn't happen, right? Mm-hmm. And then what would it say about God to tell his people to do this? And, you know, we've both been through those conversations in countless ways. What I would want to say is, what if that's a story Jesus is telling us? Why would Jesus tell us that story? How are we as disciples of Jesus meant to hear him telling that? And how does that change the way we read it? So I think, you know, as a scholar who's doing historical work, the text has one kind of, it witnesses in certain ways to certain truths. But if this is in some way his word, Jesus' word to us, uh, making us his people, teaching us about his wisdom and his kingdom, then I think that story works very differently. And I think there's a way in which it subverts itself. And that's what I mean when I say those texts want to be gospel. Like I think they're apt for other uses, they don't just tell us about the consciousness of Israel at a certain point in, the, in ancient history. There are also stories that have a certain kind of potency as stories to work on our imagination. And I'm more interested in, I'm not saying the other doesn't matter. I'm just more interested theologically in that second register. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pete, okay, so you've got a section about those texts in The Bible Tells Me So, and you yeah. give a couple options. You know, one, it's, you know, Israel thought God told him to do that, You and I'm just riffing off this, so this might be completely inaccurate. And I should just tell you what I think you wrote instead of just asking you. That's brilliant. <laughs> but it's like, okay, so they think God told them that, or they're pretending that's what God said so they can impress their neighbors so that they don't get beat up. And, and then you might just say, well, it never happened. You know, those are options that you put out there. Um, mm-hmm. how, how do you kind of respond if, if that's where you're coming from on that text instead of saying what you know Chris is going with? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at it from a historical point of view, mm-hmm. right? And um, trying to explain, you know, in light of archaeological sort of data, what those stories mean, why they would tell them, and from an ancient tribal point of view, they would tell them the way other ancient tribal people told similar kinds of stories. And, uh, you know, for me, that's a way forward theologically, too, because, um, you know, the age-old conundrum of how you've got the New Testament, which isn't big on wiping people out and taking their land, right? (laughs) Then you have the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament isn't big on it, but there is a a theme in the Old Testament where that happens with the Canaanites. And I... And I think it's just this is just another example of this hermeneutical adventure, which is also, I mean, hermeneutics is theology. You know, yeah, the, you're, you're yeah. on this, you're on this, this, this. Um, uh, I'm going to say endless quest yeah, to, right. to bring pieces together and and make sense of them. And I think whatever paradigm we pick, there's going to be 
something left over that we're not quite addressing. I mean, just speaking personally, what people typically say to me when I explain the Canaanite issue that way is that, well, how is this authoritative then? How does it function as Bible? It's a good point. I'm, I'm not sure that it does. That's sort of my answer at this point. I'm not sure it functions authoritatively other than to offend us in a sense that we look at this and we say, God allows these stories to be told even though we supersede them in some sense, that, yeah. which is not to be confused with supersessionism. There's, there's, there's violent issues in the New Testament as well. We know that. It's not, not quite the same. But, you know, anyway, go ahead, Luke. Okay. Yeah. Chris, what are you going to say? Oh. Well, I mean, so I think part of what I, I wonder if maybe what the apostles are doing following Jesus is reading those stories for the ways in which those stories subvert themselves. So I think of, and, and if they're also not reading them in kind of neatly categorized ways as we often do. So for instance, you have the story of Jonah, which in a lot of ways is a witness against the conquest narratives, or at oh, least absolutely. I think it can yeah. be read that way, right? Yeah. Yeah. But then I think sometimes even within the stories of conquest themselves, we have hints that the text right. wants us to see something else, right? So I think about something like, the Hagar and Ishmael story, and you have Hagar the Egyptian, who's wronged by Abraham long right. before the Egyptians wrong Abraham's descendants. Right. And so the te- this is a clue in the text to right. this isn't all about Egypt failing to care for the people of God. I mean, the people of God has failed Egypt long before. Mm-hmm. That, that come, we come to that place in the story, or that place in the old in the story is it in Judges where Sisera's wife and mother are waiting at home for him to return from the battle. And so you get the story of Sisera and his chariots being defeated. You know, he's killed as he sleeps in the tent, the nail driven through his head. And, and so it seems like a text of Israel's triumph over her enemies. But then the last scene in the movie, so to speak, mm-hmm. is from the perspective of his mother and wife. And so effectively, we end that story identifying with the enemy. Uh-huh. not with yeah. the conquerors. At least that's a right. possible way of reading those texts. And mm-hmm. I think over and over there are these clues. You know, I'll give one more. You know, Joshua standing by the river looking at Jericho just before the conquest, and the captain of the host of the Lord appears to him, and Joshua says, you know, whose side are you on? And he says, I'm on no one's side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? It seems to me that there are the, these hints all the way through the text that says there are other ways of reading this that you need to attend to. And that what Jesus does is position us to see those as, as the definitive clues. This is how these stories are to be taken. So that's yeah. Yeah, at you, least the beginning of that. You've used the metas- metaphor of, uh, of the choir, like the black choir, that if you let them warm up enough, they're going to get you there, right? That's your right, metaphor. Right, right, right. Well, so, well, Bart, <laughs> yeah, who, who, yeah, who, right. who uses that? My doctoral supervisor yeah. used that, but yeah. Jim, or whatever his name was. So Jim used that metaphor, but isn't that what you're trying to communicate right there, that if you let those stories warm up enough, they'll eventually point you to something that's gospel? Is that what, is that yeah, what you're well, doing right there? I mean, it's, you know, Jensen has this wonderful line about how the Ten Commandments were written by the hand of God, and who is the hand of God if not Jesus, right? So the Ten Commandments are not just some, a text that are th- that's there in Israel's history that Jesus later interprets. It's a text he gave to Israel that then he then comes to tell them how to interpret. Hmm. And that's the kind of thing I'm claiming about, but again, claiming in a kind of proposal way and not like standing on the mount with, hmm. well, this isn't written by the hand of God by any means. But my proposal would be something like, what if we were to imagine the Old Testament as having been spoken by Jesus and then now... He's showing us how to read it, but that there were always clues in the text that said the way you're reading it isn't faithful. Mm-hmm. How, right. So, yeah. So, Pete, how does that uh, reconcile with your made-up word Christotelic uh, as that reading hmm. the Old Testament? Yeah, um, I think it's a little different in the sense that um, you know. I think there's a, there's another level of, of of rhetoric that you're using, Chris, in terms of imagining Christ is giving this text to us, mm-hmm. which is a little different, I think, than hermeneutically saying, read these earlier parts of the story in light of the later yes. part of the climax of the story, so to speak.
week. I think that's it's a little bit different in how we sort of approach that. We're we're coming at it from different influences. You know, um, if Jensen is an influence of yours, um, people like John Levinson or Jim Poole are influences of mine in terms of understanding Second Temple hermeneutics and what people did with texts back then, right? So, yeah, right, but like right. I said, it's all good. You know, it's, it's, it's part of the conversation to, to try to elucidate what do we do with this Bible and, and, yes. and what are good presuppositions for that. Um, I'm, I'm having, um, you know, in my mind's eye, thinking of, like, what... I mean, I know you're using an imaginative kind of turn here, which is, which is good and fine, uh, but Jesus giving us you know, these texts, so to speak, or Jesus having written them. Um, yeah, I... That whole Trinity thing, you guys, you theologians <laughs> keep talking about, which I don't understand, and I never will, and I don't even try to anymore. I just sort of confess it. Um, you know, I think... It, that's a nice idea, because that can solve a lot of problems. For me, I keep coming back to texts <laughs> that are bothersome, you know, and I say, I, don't, I just can't see Jesus giving us that, and then saying, okay, play with it a little bit, you know, and see what I do later on, and then start putting these pieces together. Um, yeah, well, I mean, that's I, one I, paradigm. I should, yeah, yeah, yeah. I should, I should, and I try to be, of course, more exacting in the book than I'm being in this yeah. conversation, but I, I Part of what? Unless my dog Miley disagrees with you, bro. <laughs> She's actually leaving the room. She's had it. She Listen, can't do this anymore. Get out of here, Miley. That's the usual right. response. Well, I typically, I think actually that Chris is getting the Holy Spirit to cut your internet connection out, Pete. So <laughs> I think you've got both sides of this. You know, the dogs for you, internet's for Chris. Okay, Chris, go ahead. What are you saying in the book? Yeah. So I mean, I, I want to be a little more. I want to nuance some of what I just said there. I mean, I, I think there's a there's a kind of blunt force to that image I used from Jensen about Jesus writing the Ten Commandments and so on, that I immediately want to qualify. I mean, for, let me, let's take the issue of patriarchy in the Old Testament. Okay. Yeah. And I think that that is clearly a reflection of the time, right, and of the, the cultures around them and so on. And I, I do not want to say that, that that's sanctioned by God in any way. Mm-hmm. All right? yeah. because, and I, that, you know, I don't want to say something like he sanctioned it then and then later mm-hmm. vetoed his own word or something like that. Yeah. What I mean instead is I think what we want to see is that the Old Testament bears witness to the work of God, the work of revelation among them, right? It bears a certain kind of witness that is a witness that requires discernment. So if I can go back to what I was saying before, part of what I argue in, in the book is that human beings are creatures who are made for mediation and interpretation, that mm-hmm. that's who we are. And that we're never going to be saved from interpretation. Like there's no reading of scripture right. or anything else that's going to end the process of interpretation. That the the, the mm. goal is to make us more faithful interpreters, to make us wise interpreters. And that right. what the scriptures are given, they're not God saying, this is what I think. It's more like God saying, these are the kinds of stories you're going to need to become the kind of people I'm going to make you. Mm. So like... Um, I don't know if this metaphor will help or not. I think it's in a footnote in the book. Um, my, a couple of my editors really didn't like the metaphor, and you may not either, but I keep coming back to it because I think it gets at something I want to say, right? So it's uh, David Steinmetz, who's mm. you know, at Duke for a while. He had this image yeah. of reading Scripture like reading a detective novel the second time. And he said, you, "Oh yeah, no, I like I like that analogy. Yeah, yeah. Right? I use a so, surprise. Yeah, yeah. Good. So yeah. You, you're, you're familiar with that, right? Well, what I did is tweak that and say, what if we were to imagine a, a master detective trying to make, you know, bringing other detectives into apprenticeship mm-hmm. and then giving them like just a storm of stories, detective <clears throat> stories, and mm-hmm. showing them how to read those detective stories with the goal being how to be able to, to make that same kind of detection in real life, mm-hmm. not to make them master readers of the detective stories but to truly make them master detectives. Yeah. And what kind of stories would he choose if that were his goal? Again, the goal is not to make them master readers of detective stories, but to make them detectives, right? And I think that Scripture is more like that for me. It's not, the goal is not to become great readers of Scripture. The goal is to become people of discernment, to live in the world. 
Right. And that what God gives us in Scripture is not necessarily a revelation of what his purposes are clearly in some kind of like, here, I'm going to tell you my opinion and write it down. It's more about you're going to need texts like these to grapple with to become the kind of people I intend to make you. Now, that doesn't solve all problems by any way, but that gives you a feel for kind of the angle I'm wanting to to take on the... Well, I think, you know, discernment, and then you bring wisdom, and you know, into that as well. Um, You know, and and coming at it again from my little historical biblical scholar angle, and, and you mentioned it before, you see a process of discernment, first of all, within the Bible itself. You have conversations mm-hmm. happen in the Bible. You have, you, have, you know, I, I, I like the, um, the, the language of Walter Brueggemann of counter-testimony. You have, yeah. within the Bible, you have arguing. That's yes. a discernment process. Um, the fact that the Psalter is so varied in how it, it, it theologically and how it talks about God and Israel is, I, I'm, I'm watching this, we can call it a process of living and of discernment happening. And, and, you know, in the Second Temple period, and how Scripture ha- had to be discerned differently because the context changed. Absolutely. Um, you're not in the same world anymore, so how do you negotiate this, which is where you have all this creative Midrashic stuff happening. I think um, maybe we're getting back to the continuity-discontinuity issue in terms of discernment now, but um, I think about how... And getting back to the soul Jesus writing the Old Testament, I, I know what you're saying there. Um, but the fairly radical shift in terms of what is central in the gospel compared to what is central in Israel's story. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm talking about those um, either rituals or, or offices or, or, or structures that were so central to Israel's story even to the end, even to the end, land and yeah. temple and God's presence and and there we lost again <laughs> and land. I, I really wanted that point too. You need to find okay. a way to okay. edit it back in. He'll, we'll just he'll come right back on. Hey Pete, yeah. pick yeah, up. Can you with, hear me? With and land, you're talking about the importance of land. All yeah, the way yeah. To land. Yeah, um, land or, or, or uh, things, uh, the things that are, what's, what's so important in the Old Testament? I think it's fair to say it's gaining the land and staying in it. Yeah. Because that's where God is, because God's in the temple. And those things don't really come to an end in Israel's story. And so we have this radical, uh, I'm going to say, transformation of Israel's story, which I like the word transformation because it maintains an essence of continuity as well as discontinuity. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, in other words, here, here's, here's what I'm thinking in a nutshell. Um, I really want to value the discontinuity as, as something that is of tremendous theological value as we think through what, is it, what does it mean to read Scripture as yes. a church. Yes, well, I you know, absolutely agree, and right. I, I think I think that part of, and this is so. Here's a way in which I, I'm appreciative of right talking about Israel as the people chosen to bear the sins of the world. Yeah, that one. What if we were to imagine those texts then as the triune God's way of bringing a people out of the world into His into participation with that project of transformation. For the yeah. sake of the world, right? So it's right. that way of reading, uh, reading land and sacred space and so on, is at the heart of what Scripture comes to call sin, right? And so what Israel does is live that out for us in a way that ultimately culminates in Jesus as Israel in person, fulfilling that vocation. So I think something like that holds both discontinuity and continuity together, and we can't lose either. I, I, think, I think that's, and I haven't found a way f- to say it satisfactorily, but I, I think I completely agree with you, Pete, that, that we have to say both of those things, right? That we don't, want to, we don't want to sunder the new from the old in some kind of Marcy Night way, but we also don't want to so relate to them that there's no sense of transformation coming. Right. Christ, right. So I, right. I, yeah, I'm with you 100%. However we get at that, right? And right, exactly. Case, yeah. 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 And maintaining that tension somehow. And, mm-hmm. and the thing is, you know, okay, how does that form us as a community then? Well, I can't lay out here the three steps, but there's something 
there that is, I think, it takes away the simplicity of the Bible, like it's a flat thing that just has the story, and you all sort of get it, you know. The Bible's easy. Let's start with the, what the Bible means, and we'll build things. It's not like that, right? And, and yeah. I think what that does is, um, and I think historical criticism has had a hand in this as well, is to, um, and I, I, think, I think I say this in that yellow book, The Bible Tells Me So, Available at Harper One in the world. <laughs> um, that uh, you know, a process of decentering the Bible in the sense, in that grammatical historical sense, yeah. right? Where it's, it tells you what to do. Well, actually, the Bible is a very complicated book. Yes. Maybe that's part of it too. That you know, we're sitting here having this discussion about how to get close to God through reading this text, and we're disagreeing, but we're also not punching each other. Well, I would punch <laughs> Luke, but he's in yeah. Texas. He's yeah. Yeah, that's right. why we just do it online instead of in person. <laughs> the key to Christian community. Yeah, just Keep yeah, it all right. virtual. Yeah. Do it all virtual. You know, but I, and I think those are, you know, um, I don't know, that's just something to think about, I guess. Yeah, you know. that's yeah. good. All right, uh, closing comments. Chris, you want to go first? Anything uh, you want in there? Yeah, I mean, we'll let Pete go first. Closing comments? Yeah, that should I be. Just, I mean, I, I usually would just wrap up myself, but I feel like you guys three person you might have gotten something uh, excluded that you want to be included something uh, excluded that you want to be embraced i know something uh, that i i wanted to throw in earlier and i forgot i can throw that out you can good why don't you throw it out now because i don't have a closing comment i'll have to make up a word or something. <laughs> a song would be fine too okay so there's, there's this image um, i can read the yankee box score from the last game if you'd like me to do that so oh, that, nice. yeah, that's fine they were yes. off last night so you can do that okay go ahead chris yeah I come back to this image a lot. Uh, Origen, in his in the fragment for his commentary on Matthew, book two, where he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount. He, he, when yeah. he reads, "Blessed are the peacemakers," he makes it about interpreting Scripture, yeah. and he talks about how <laughs> yeah. blessed are the people who can make peace of the discord in Scripture. And yeah. there are so many things. I mean, I, I really. If I were more talented than I actually am, I would write a whole book about this, but at least an article um, right. I'm or working tweet. on right now, drawing on this, or at least a tweet. tweet. Let me set my goals. <laughs> right. This is attainable, right? I can at least mention it on your podcast and then let <laughs> yeah. the two of you make sense of it. But no, I mean, this, there's so much I love about it, right? One is, he, ta- he talks, he compares it to the harp and the lyre, and he says, you know, each chord makes a different sound. And if you only hit the chords themselves and they sound differently, then you think there's a problem. But yeah. then if you hear a musician, uh, he talks about David, someone with great skill, yeah. take that difference and make something beautiful, you realize they were made for each other. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that gets as, if I'm going to use one image for what I'm drawn toward, it's that, right? The sense that we never want to downplay the difference because the difference is part of ultimately the beauty that's meant to be created. But mm-hmm. we have to be certain kinds of people in order for that to happen. Like that, those texts don't read themselves that way. Right, and right. if we don't have some kind of skill for how to make the horror of genocide texts or the horror of patriarchy texts into gospel, then that says something not so much about the text but about us. And that's, for me, over and over in conferences and in conversations, pastoral conversations and academic conversations, I feel like we shift the blame onto the text. You know, the yeah. text is to blame for this difference. And for me, I, I want to bring that back home and say, wait a minute, we're not the kind of people yet. Who, yeah. Jesus read these same texts and didn't make them sound like that, mm-hmm. right? And the apostles played these texts a certain way. And that there's no one way to play them, but mm-hmm. there are ways that are beautiful and ways that are ugly. And that what we should be concerned with is how do we learn to play beautifully, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a tweet or not, but that's, that's, that's really yeah. the... You'd probably have to do that in like three tweets, but that's that's still really that's good. That's a long, that'll be a long tweet. Yeah, that's good. Well, guys, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you taking the time, Pete. I appreciate you borrowing your neighbor's Wi-Fi so you could get online for part of the conversation. <laughs> uh, oh, you can edit this out, but I've got to tell you this guy's story. This story about Wi-Fi borrowing somebody's connection. I was at church once, speaking a church in Mississippi, and I spoke. And then in this this kind of low church model. You know, you have if you have a guest speaker there, you have them pray to close the service. Okay. Yeah. So the pastor says to so and so, "Hey, you you close us out with a prayer." And so the man starts praying, and I'm not lying; he prayed for ten minutes mm-hmm. to close the service. 
And my favorite part of the whole prayer, and it was a long, obviously very involved, <laughs> was he said, God, forget, he was going through his sins. It was a litany of things that he had done wrong, and he was thanking God for okay. forgiving me. <laughs> yeah, it was very interesting. All right. <laughs> he said, God, forgive me for going into bookstores and reading books without buying them. Except that one book, you really used that one for me. And, and like, I started laughing. I'm all on the stage. Like, I'm like doubling up. So you need to, Pete, tonight when you go to bed, you need to ask God to forgive you for using your neighbor's Wi-Fi, except for today. Okay. Yeah. Works, so. yeah I, got I, just, I just wouldn't do that in church. You got to know your genre, you know. A prayer is not like a sermon, right? No. Right. Genre bending at its worst right there. Yeah, well, this yeah. genre has been an insightful podcast. That was a transition, in case you didn't know what I just said there. That's a transition. Guys, this has been fun, and uh, we'll have to do it again. Yeah, you bet. it's great to meet you, man. I, Same I, I look forward to meeting you in the flesh sometime. Okay, we'll hug it out then. All right. Nice. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.